Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Matab Narsimhan. Matab is author of the middle-grade novel Valley of the Rats, and we're going to be talking about that book as well as her own favorite book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. But before we get to all that, I want to let you know that if you're interested in participating in the Dream Gardens podcast, please send me a request through my contact page at jlemont.com. You can also go there to check out all the other Dream Gardens podcasts. Or if you want to know more about my own work as an author, you can go to my author website at jodylemont.com. And finally, if you like what you hear today, please link, share, comment, write a review, or subscribe. Let me know what you think. My guest today is Matab Narsimhan. Matab is author of The Tiffin, You and Me Both, and Jeannie Meanie. Her latest book is the middle grade novel Valley of the Rats. You can find more information about Matab at www.matabnarsimhan.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Jody. As I mentioned, your latest novel is Valley of the Rats. And I forget to, when is that coming out? Well, it actually came out in Canada in September, and it's come out in the U.S. Um, on the 15th of February. So it's available at your favorite bookstore. Uh, for those who haven't had a chance to pick it up and read it yet, can you t- talk a little bit of what this book is about? Absolutely. So it's about this young boy, Krish, who is a bit of a germaphobe. And um, he is dying to bond with his father, Kabir, who's a quite a famous photographer. And so he, you know, kind of pleads with his father to go out on a camping trip. And that trip, unfortunately, goes south because they get lost in, um, you know, the foothills of the Himalayas. And as they're lost, they somehow come across this little hidden village uh, by the name of Imdur. And the moment they are kind of rescued by the villagers and they seek, um, you know, to have shelter out there for the night, Chris starts to feel that there is something wrong and he really believes in his gut feel. And as the story progresses, he realizes that their lives are in danger and he has to get out somehow. But unfortunately, his father has uh, a secret mission and he does not want to leave. So the story is a little bit about a conflict between the two, they being in a really dangerous situation and Krish having to overcome his germophobia, having to overcome distrust of strangers to try and uh, escape. This is kind of a, a unique and unusual story. What was your inspiration? Where did this story idea come from? Well, it came from a couple of documentaries that I saw on YouTube. One of them is the Karni Mata Temple in Rajasthan. And, um, you know, it's if, if you look it up on Google, there is a National Geographic documentary. And the unusual thing about this particular temple is that it houses about fifteen to 20,000 black rats And these rats are worshipped instead of, you know, thought of as pests and killed. And I found that horrifying and fascinating at the same time, because everywhere across the world, you know, you see a black rat and you have to kill it. Whereas in this particular place uh, in in Rajasthan, there is a temple and they are worshipped. So I thought that was a fascinating little tidbit. And I kind of, you know, grew from there. And there was another documentary I saw, which was a PBS documentary where 
you know, rats uh, somehow, you know, they, they come out every 15 or, or not 15, actually 50 years. And this is at the same time that a bamboo grove, you know, flowers. And then once that uh, the, the fruit of the bamboo is exhausted, they turn on the crops and the villagers go hungry. It's, it's kind of a longish documentary. But, you know, with all stories, um, you know, you, you see something and then it all kind of, you know, gets into this soup uh, in your head. And out of that, sto- a story is born. So that's exactly what happened to me. Now, it's interesting, uh, both the main character, uh, Krish, uh, you know, is dealing with, with something that, you know, initially is very, um, makes them squirm, very uncomfortable. I would say for the reader as well, you know, most people, when they think of rats, it's something that's very uncomfortable. But at the same time, I think a lot of readers are drawn to things that maybe, you know, make them feel a little comfortable. I'm kind of that reader too, you know, I'm not, you know, if something's going to make me uncomfortable, I say, oh, okay, this might be an interesting story still, even though, it, it, is that something you look for? Or what is that appeal for story? that make us squirm a little bit? You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Jody. It's, it's a great question because I tend to write a lot of stories that have got, uh, you know, fear in them because I think that kids do come to a story or actually a lot of people because they want to feel something. And I think scary stories, uh, which are age appropriate, of course, make the readers really feel and, and scary stories or middle grade horror stories really scare the kids. But, uh, you know, I also think that monsters are in a way a kind of a metaphor for the things that scare us in real life. And when kids can read a story, uh, follow along with the main character and come out the other end, um, you know, safely, I think that kind of builds their own confidence. It gives them the strength to face the world. It gives them, you know, some kind of guidelines and inspiration. And I I think that's, uh, you know, that's something that I love doing in my stories. And I do want the, the readers to feel scared, but then I also want them to know that there is always a solution if you're brave enough to kind of dig deep for courage and find that solution. It's a way to face fears and uh, actually act as sort of a release too for all those feelings that a person might have. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I wonder, along with the more fantastic elements, this is also a book about a, uh, an uneasy relationship between a father and son. And I'm wondering, what was it you wanted to explore about that relationship in, in this book? You know, the thing is that one, every book has to have conflict. And in, in this particular instance, because it's set in India and because, you know, you have, um, you know, an Asian father, I think a lot of people also realize that respecting your elders is really, really important in the Asian culture. And in this particular instance, Kabir, which is the father, is is in the wrong. He is doing the wrong thing. He has a secret. He is not being truthful with his son. Um, but Krish, given that kids are pretty powerless, uh, Krish actually happens to have a really good solution in that he believes in his in what he has to do. And somehow by standing his ground as respectfully as possible, he gets his father over to his side and finally ends up being the one who is instrumental in, um, you know, in, in moving the story forward without giving out too many spoilers. I was wondering too. Um, I know that the, the the village in the story, the village of Imdur, the setting is a fictional place. But I'm wondering, what did you draw upon uh, to create? Because even in fictional places, they're usually based on um, something tangible uh, to to at least build it up. And what did you do to what did you draw upon to create it and make it seem real? Well, 
For one, um, I mean, I looked at a lot of uh, villages uh, in northern India, you know, in the Kashmir area, in Nepal, how they lived there, you know, what was their lifestyle. Like, for example, Ima, who's the shaman of um, of Imdur, some of her headdress and some of the outfits that she wore, I kind of drew a little bits and pieces from Nepali culture and Nepali outfits and uh, northern Indian outfits. So it's, you know, a little bit of truth with a lot more, you know, a lot of imagination thrown in. Is there a part of the book you can share with us? Of course, I'd love to. So I'm going to share just the end of the first chapter, which is when Kabir uh, and Krish are in the, uh, you know, in the Ladakh range. It's night is falling. They're kind of lost. And Krish all of a sudden sees a couple of rats and he says, we must follow them because where there are rats, there are food. So they kind of follow the rats up to the top of the hill. And unfortunately, the rats disappear. So it's the end of the first chapter and it's a really short excerpt. Kabir Roy to Adventure Camp. My son Krish and I are lost and our GPS and cell phones aren't working. We're a day and a half trek from Leh, somewhere in the Ladakh range. We need a guide to lead us back to camp, over and out. Only the wind and rain spoke. May I try, I said. Dad handed me the radio. I tried once more, sweeping all the frequencies. On an impulse, I switched to the frequency that Anjali and I used when we'd go on family camping trips. She'd be in her tent with her mom and dad. I'd be in mine. We'd switch on our radios and chat late into the night about everything and nothing. This is Krish. Can you hear me? I stopped short of saying Anjali. If she was listening, she would know. But would she answer after the way I'd let her down last summer? Nothing. I clipped the radio onto my belt, making a mental note to check the battery as soon as we were out of the rain. We should have pitched a tent when we were low. The wind is too strong here and we'll freeze. Let's go back. His flat tone made me sick. I walked away, searching the thick tangle of roots for a glimpse of the rats. The stink was stronger here, and I took shallow breaths. Facts are facts. The rats had to be close by. My GF said they were. And not only rats, something or someone else, much bigger than the rats. My pulse raced as I stared at a thick clump of bushes. A shadowy figure squatted low to the ground. Who's there, I whispered. A gruff voice said, run. And that's it. A good place to stop. So if you <laughs> want to find out more, you get the book and find out. So what is, what is the best part of writing for children? For you, I know this is, is one of many books you've written for children. What is it about writing for children that really appeals to you? Well, the thing is, I, I love the fact that we can explore, or rather I can explore absolutely any topic at all. And, um, you know, whether it's death or it's sadness or it's abandonment or even the fun stuff or, you know, a portal fantasy where you can, you know, move from one place to another place and kind of escape. It's it's fun to write that because I think at heart, I'm still a 12-year-old and that's the kind of stuff I love reading. So it's what I love writing. But having done a lot of school visits as well, I think this age, that age group that I write for, which is basically 9 to 12 or 9 to 13, is the most impressionable age. They are the most enthusiastic about reading, about exploring the world, about exploring their place in it. It's just so much fun that I love reading books like that. And I and that's somehow, you know, made my love for writing them grow as well. And are there other books in the works? 
Oh, absolutely. So right now I'm working on a middle grade series, which is basically Goosebumps uh, meets Asian mythology. And it's in a contemporary setting. So two of the books in the uh, series are already out. One of them is called Warned, uh, The Astrologist Prophecy, which is, um, which is set in India. The second one is based on a Chinese myth, and it's called Haunted, The Cursed Lake. And I'm currently working on Possessed, which is uh, the Ouija board in from Japan. It's a myth from Japan and it's called Possessed. So that's the one I'm working on and hopefully it should be out in the next couple of months. So many things to look forward to. Now, the, the book you picked um, as your own particular favorite book also is kind of a, you know, a fantastic uh, a book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was written by C.S. Lewis, and this was published in 1950. Now, it's hard to imagine any there's somebody out there who isn't familiar with this book, but for those few readers who might not have had a chance to uh, read it yet, uh, can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Absolutely. So it is one of my favorite books. It's it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's about four kids who are sent away during uh, World War One uh, to to a house uh, in the countryside. Of course, a lot of uh, people in the UK or in uh, in London did that, you know, to to keep the children safe. And so there are four kids, four siblings, uh, who are sent off to this. Uh, old little house uh, to live with the professor and uh, the housekeeper. And the youngest one, Lucy, uh, during one of the days when they're playing hide and seek, decides to hide in a wardrobe. And she goes into that wardrobe and finds the world of Narnia. And from there on, the adventures begin. And of course, Narnia is under the spell of the White Witch. And Lucy and her siblings end up saving uh, Narnians and, you know, just just basically uh, working with Aslan, who's the who's the lion and who's supposed to be the savior spirit out there. So it's it's just a fun, fun read. And I remember this was I read this book when I was in school um, in back in India in grade five. And I think it's been. It, it is the top of my uh, favorite list of books. And I, I think I end up reading it at least once in a year or maybe just watching the movie or watching the BBC series. Yeah, I just, I, I love it. I'm wondering, since you, you, you said you read this fifth grade and you, you read it every year, has your reading or do you find something new each time you look at it? Or has it sort of looked a little bit differently now than when you first read it? Actually, no, it's just like an old familiar friend now. I mean, I can, I can almost know what's coming. And I, I, I know that we're on podcasts, so people can't actually see the book that I'm holding up. But there is this one section, which is when uh, Lucy actually discovers the wardrobe. And there are there are a few small little illustrations in the book. And I think my favorite is the little lamppost that she sees from the wardrobe. And I, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to share a small little excerpt from, from there, if I may. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so this is the section which I absolutely love because it's the, it's the tipping point. It's the inciting incident that starts the whole adventure. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wondered, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough and even prickly. 
Why, it's just like the branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to be, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. And this was like, for me, I think after that, I, after I read this, um, I think I was feeling the, the back of my wardrobe, you know, at, at regular intervals to find out, you know, if I could step into, into a magical land. Well, it's interesting because uh, we were never given any explanation why there's an entrance to Narnia in back of the wardrobe or why no time has passed when they return home. But that's okay. And I think that's true for a lot of children's books. Everything doesn't have to be explained. Most children accept sort of the magic uh, part of the book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's the suspension of disbelief of everything else kind of works you know they they don't need the explanation and that's why you know fantasy is slightly different from science fiction where you know you do have to have explanation for why things happen and physics have to work you know in the fantasy you have a bit more leeway and I think portal fans fantasies for me have been the most fun because it's 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 just the the idea that somewhere around me in the real world that is lurking a portal to a different world. And that's why I think, you know, Harry Potter was also so, I was, it must've been so popular with kids because, you know, here you are at a station and, you know, platform nine and three quarters and you're into Hogwarts or, you know, you're, you're into uh, the magical world. So I, I think that's very, very appealing, not just to kids, but to adults as well. Now, there's so many interesting characters in this book, but I'm wondering if there's a particular character you either uh, over the years have identified with or just find particularly interesting or appealing uh, or stands out as opposed to the other characters. I have to say I love the character of Edmund because he basically goes through the most change. I mean, Lucy's nice. You know, there are sections when she's selfish. There is Susan but I, and, and Peter, of course, you know, who's the brave and courageous and always doing the right thing. But I think Edmund has the, uh, has the best character arc and the change because he starts out as being selfish and mean. And, you know, he, he makes terrible mistakes and then he realizes the error of his ways. And I always love characters who are changed by the end of the story and change drastically. So I have to say I loved the character of Edmund. Because it's real redemption and what uh, Edmund goes to because he does such terrible things in the beginning, like you said. Now, I'm I'm curious about this book uh, is that, uh, you know, part of the backdrop of this book, and it's talked about in the beginning, is it's set uh, in, um, you know, while the Blitz is going on in London. It's mentioned only briefly, and it isn't really brought up again. But I'm thinking, you know, it's even though it's a fantasy book, it's something that informs the book. And uh, I, I can't think it's a sort of, it was an important thing that C.S. Lewis included it as part of the story that, um, and I'm wondering what you thought about that, why that's, even though it's mentioned briefly, it doesn't really f- figure into the fantasy elements. And yet it's a really important part of the book, I think. Yeah, because I, th- I think what he was trying to show is that, you know, the, it's the story starts out in a very real world. And then it kind of expands into Narnia, but then the kids can also come back. And again, this being, I think it was book the third or the, I, I 
don't remember the order, or I think this was the second one. The first one was the magician's nephew. And because of that, like, and, and because the kids kind of go back and forth between Narnia and the real world, I think this kind of set the stage that they always have a place to come back to. And then when Narnia calls or where they're needed, or, you know, when they need to go back, that's when they can. So I think that's the reason it's, it's briefly mentioned here, but in the rest of the chronicles, you know, it like it plays a pretty important part. So I think that's why he must have mentioned it. I also think another interesting thing about this book, there's a there's not sort of kitchen sink aspect to the book. And by that, I mean, there are all sorts of things. There are talking animals and mythological tre- creatures and witches, and there's even Santa Claus. Well, they call him Father Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that's also set in the English countryside. So it says like all sorts of everything, which doesn't seem like it should work, and yet it does somehow. So does. What, is, what is it about this that makes it work, all this, all this stuff thrown in there, and yet it works somehow? I think because he has made the characters just... I, I mean, he, he's got the art, like if one, he's a, he's a fabulous storyteller and he's just uh, provided so much depth to the world. Uh, he's provided kind of backstories of, uh, you know, how the White Witch came and Aslan, you know, what he does. And it's just, I, I think he's done such a good job in uh, providing a very rich setting with all the imaginative trappings that it has. And again, the age group that he's writing for, uh, because the kids are told that, you know, they, Lucy is stepping from the real world into a fantastical world. They kind of take in everything and, you know, the talking animals and the centaurs and the fawns and, you know, everything. They just kind of take it into their stride because they're also, it, the story is grounded by four very real kids, the humans. So you have the human aspect who are interacting with the fantastical elements of the story or the fantastic creatures. And I think somehow he makes it work. Because even the creatures have got very real feelings. They've got, you know, the, the, the lion, you know, Aslan is crying at some point and, you know, he's like, or, or, you know, when he's bound up and when he goes and offers himself to the white witch, like even the animals have got very real feelings. They're very human-like, which is why one can identify with them, even though they are creatures of imagination. As I mentioned earlier, too, this was published in 1950, and, you know, we're, what, 72 years later. It's still in print. People are still reading uh, mm-hmm. it, which is not true of a lot of uh, uh, books from a ways back. So what is it about this that still has this enduring uh, appeal, even now after all these years? Oh, my gosh. I, you know what, uh, Jody? if I knew that, I mean, my next book would be, you know, kind of evergreen. I, I wish I knew the secret of that, but... Uh, you know, the thing is that whenever people talk about uh, portal stories or portal fantasies, I think this one always features in for one, because I think there are seven books and it's such a it's such a broad world that he has created. And it, it's just it's so well written and it's so rich that people kind of keep going back to it. It's like it's like uh, Tolkien's, uh, um, you know, the Middle Earth trilogy and uh, Lord of the Rings somehow people keep going back to it, even though there is newer stuff written, even though there's beautiful stuff written now, it somehow seems to be, you know, the piece that people kind of keep going back to. And I think for for fantasy novels, for middle grade, this is something that people keep going back to because it's, you know, probably because people loved it so much, the kids have grown up, they share it with their kids, and those people share it with others, and it kind of just keeps going. So I, I think that's the reason it's evergreen. And it's kind of a template uh, for a lot of books that uh, follow uh, for for yeah, uh, yeah. fantasy and things like that. Yeah, 
I mean, I think Lord of the Rings was a template for a lot of epic fantasies coming after that. And it's, it's uh, you know, that's another evergreen. And that's why you keep having, you know, Hobbit movies. And, you know, they, it just keeps going. Uh, well, uh, Matab, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me both about uh, your own novel, Valley of the Rats, and uh, give us an idea of what other things you're working for, uh, working on, and for talking to me today about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which gave me a chance to reread it as well. So thank you for uh, talking to me about all of that today. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Jody. It was a pleasure. I love revisiting both worlds. You can find more information about Matab Narsimhan at www.matabnarsimhan.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.